Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Heart of Medicine, the podcast where I talk to doctors to learn from them, their experience, their wisdom through how to succeed not only in your career but in your life, and how to get the most out of the journey. My name is Dr. Coelho. I'm a pediatrician in Sydney, and it is with great honor that I introduce you to my first guest, Dr. Richard Dunstan, also a pediatrician who is one of the kindest, most wonderful people that I have ever had the pleasure of meeting. I'm proud to be mentored by him and even more proud to call him a friend. So welcome, Rick. Thank you. That's a big ask. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Rick, please tell us a little bit about your background, you know, your upbringing, where you grew up, a bit about your family. Sure. Okay. So my uh, upbringing is probably a little bit different to most in the sense that my father, who was probably one of the major parts of my life, uh, was in the army. He uh, ended up actually being commanding the army uh, and then he went on to be the governor of South Australia. He had an illustrious career in the army. He served in the Second World War. He served in Japan and after the atomic bomb and actually was a guide through Hiroshima after that. That played a huge part in his later life and philosophy. He also served um, in Vietnam and he served twice in Vietnam and he was involved in probably one of the largest battles the Australian forces undertook in Vietnam, with, and he served with distinction there. And then he was the officer commanding the forces in Vietnam when they withdrew. I guess what I'm coming around to say is that then he served as governor of South Australia for nine years, full stop. He was one of the most humble human beings I think I've met. He never, ever spoke about his successes, his It was interesting. He used to say the thing that impressed him most was when a soldier came up to him and said, you saved my life. He thought that was, of all his successes, that is the thing that he talked about most. Uh, Being in the Army and uh, growing up with the Army, we were given an enormous sense of duty and an enormous sense of responsibility which just went through the whole family, and that's what the family was part of. The Army was the important part. And we all towed the line and fell into place. So that's uh, my mother, of course. My father could never have got anywhere without my mother supporting him and uh, doing the things that she did to actually raise us and uh, educate us. So it was interesting because having talked about my mother, we had a discussion just recently about going into medicine. And my parents were actually surprised when I decided to go into medicine. No, really? Yeah, I'd always uh, said I wanted to be an engineer because I was good at maths and I enjoyed maths. And what happened was just as you're getting to put down what you're going to do, my father had a very good friend of his, a guy called who I had never met, and his subject, but it was called Digger James. And Digger James was a platoon commander in Korea and they served together. And Digger James got his feet blown off in a mine and went back to university and trained as a doctor. And he then served without legs with in Vietnam while my father was there and um, he was a great inspiration to the soldiers who had been wounded because he could say, well, you know, this happened to me too, I know what you're going through. And uh, he was really an inspirational human being. As I said, only by talk, and Digger always said the thing he found interesting was that the people who did medicine who were dedicated to medicine all their lives and always wondered, actually, hey, many of them didn't dislike it when they did it because it wasn't what they were expecting. Right. So come to me putting my name down for what I wanted to do at university and I said, oh, I'm not too interested in medicine, so I'm sure I'm not going to be disappointed with it, so I'll start there and work my way down. So no expectation. <laughs> no expectation. <laughs> right. I started and the first three years in those days were all clinic, weren't clinical, they were all um you know, chemistry and pathology and all that stuff, which was, I, I survived. And But when I walked into the clinical years, I thought, this is where I want to be. And my becoming a paediatrician was, again, another accident. I um, had done one year of adult medicine and we were looking to do the next year of adult medicine. And during my paediatric training, I'd actually got quite unwell during the paediatric term and I'd missed half of it through being unwell. So I was very unhappy about any child that walked into emergency in those days and I always used to put them down the bottom of the list hoping someone else would pick up that bit of paper and look after them. So 
I felt as though I was missed out. So I actually decided I'd do a year of paediatrics to see if I, you know, just to, to make me more rounded. And the first week I did paediatrics, I walked into the ward and I thought, I've come home. Felt right. It just felt right, yeah. And it stayed right. Mind you, the difference between hospital paediatrics and uh, working in the office paediatrics is, is extreme. <laughs> and, uh, and all those things that you like in hospital paediatrics of being able to make people well, get them in, get them out, make a difference. When you do office paediatrics, they're the ones that you look after, the ones that you can't get well and that you've got to continue to um, manage and look after. It's a different group. Not as much instant gratification. <laughs> no. Yeah, no, a no. different kind of medicine. Very much so, but still interesting and still I find very satisfying. So... It sounds like you were quite influenced by your father growing up. Was there any pressure to sort of be excellent um, given the ranks that he had risen to? Oh, I think that was not from them but from me. You know, I was always um, because when he was, uh, when we were growing up, my father was always in command of uh, various camps and establishments. And in those days we moved, like we moved everywhere. So I was always, I remember when I was growing up, I was, I was never allowed I was very aware of what I did, that I didn't overstep the mark anywhere because uh, that would be just bring the name into disrepute. So I was very... So the family reputation and you had to... Yeah, yeah, very much so, toe the line. Toe the line. line. And that's why <laughs> things like because he was in the army then moved, we were, I went to boarding school, which I rather enjoyed because less pressure there right. <laughs> to behave. Um, I'm not sure the boarding master saw it that way. but right. uh, And then when I went to university and stuff like that, that was, um, but yeah, but I think the, the die was set by then. Okay, all right. So why did you choose Southwest Sydney? You moved around a lot, so you must have yeah, gotten exposed to a lot of places. Okay, so the places that I really enjoyed when we moved around was, was one was a Wagga Wagga in the country, and I always thought that I'd like to be in the country and uh, and I, my wife, Donna, who I married, was very much a city girl and regarded anything west of the GPO as largely unexplored. <laughs> so South Westby was a compromise. It was half country, half city in those days. It's become more city now, but in, in when we first came out here, it was, it was half country. In fact, when I went for the first interview, this job, one of the questions was, did I know how to uh, treat a snake bite? And... Uh, <laughs> which filled me with horror because the next thing statement was that we have one a year. And I thought, where have I moved to? <laughs> of course, I've never had a steak bite in the last 30 years, but right. I do know how to treat it. I'd- I was going to say I haven't seen one yet, but uh, it's reassuring you haven't seen one in 30 years. I'm from New Zealand, so we don't even have venomous steaks there. So you fill me with dread when you talk about this. So anyway, well, you did stay. I mean, you've been practising in the area now for oh, how long? Oh, yes, for 30 years. So much for the five-year plan. It, yes. It failed. It's been, oh, you grow up here, you know, and I know that that's unusual, but I got to become, you know, your children grow up here and we got to become part of the community with the schools. And the community is very much in this area a community and they still hold, even though, as I said, we've been flooded by lots of new development, they still regard themselves as a community and it's very refreshing and I know lots of people don't like working where they live but um, I get a a nice thing that I walk down the road and I see children that I've looked after and families I've looked after I always worry when I don't recognize them because they always say the treatment's working and I'm thinking I'm not sure what that's about, but good. Yes, and I can vouch that has happened when we've been out to lunch before as a hospital team. Um, Rick often gets approached by second and sometimes third generation families that he's looked after. That must be incredibly satisfying. Adds that one extra dimension. It takes it out of work. Mm. For, and for me, that's important because you do so, you do a, I do a lot of time doing it. So that extra dimension, I find, just adds to the joy, I guess. Right. And you do have a direct comparison because you also do work at Sydney Children's Hospital. Can you tell us about what you do there? Yeah, well, well, this is all goes back to when I was thought that working in big hospitals was the way to go and that I um, went overseas and trained in paediatric rehabilitation. And I did it at a time where paediatric rehabilitation was not, well, wasn't actually established in Australia. There was no, and so I actually had to do the I went overseas and I did paediatric rehabilitation for a year and then I did adult rehabilitation and sat the adult exam because there was no paediatric exam as such. 
And then I came back and as always with these things, there's never a job for you when you come back, even with the best intentions. So I did a year of doing paediatric locums and I just enjoyed that so much. And then I, the job came up for paediatric rehabilitation, which was very nice. They actually formed a job and I went there, but it was so new that nobody knew what to do with it. Nobody had a patient, nobody had anything and uh, life was a bit miserable. I ended up going half-time paediatric rehabilitation and the other half-time general paediatrics, which has been a good mix for me. So you were quite involved in setting up the College of Paediatric Rehab, is that, is that I right? I started, yeah, it's been taken over by a lot more people, but I was initially, because there was <laughs> Adrian Epps was another person and the guy from Adelaide called Peter Flett who was also, and then and we spoke with the adult guy, so, and then I sort of fell, because things got busier with private practice, I fell uh, by the wayside with that and it was taken over by everybody. Now it's a big college and it's, it's independent and it's got lots of people involved and they've moved forward in quantum leap and bounds. It must have been quite good to, to see from yeah. where it came from. Yeah, I know where it came from, but really the other people that followed me have done a lot more <laughs> and have, have really um, put it on its feet and, and made it a specialty that's um, important and worthwhile. What's the most satisfying thing about the rehab process for anyone listening who's thinking about that as a career path? I think um, the rehab process now is, um, well, it's, first of all, there is a specific uh, area and it is recognised in the hospitals and it is and now the orthopaedic surgeons and and the other people involved are much happier in referring to rehab and realise that rehab has a place and this was also brought out with head injuries and uh, there was a big uh, well, when we first started there was a big commission out here called the Cuff Commission where with about head injuries and there was a lot of money put into head injuries and head injury follow up and it has really changed how we view head injuries and how we review head injury recovery when we first set this up going back we thought oh yes we'd follow these kids for two years and then they'd be fine well no, that could be no further than the truth they are not they need long-term follow-up and long-term management and, and this has become more obvious and I think this is probably the chronic management of paediatrics is I think is the thing that's becoming changing all of our practices. Now you're also very much involved in the Kids of MacArthur Foundation can you tell us what that is about and how it got started and this is a time that uh, you have to understand that there is limited funding for state-run hospitals, which most of ours are, and that to get extra equipment and to get all those extra things, you really need a foundation. And it was always a problem for us that we would send patients from Campbelltown into major teaching hospitals and the equipment and the beds and everything was much better. It was like going from a poor cousin into not quite the Taj Mahal, but something much better. And it seemed to be that it was unfair that people should be penalised by the tyranny of distance. You know, just because we were a bit further out, they should have exactly the same equipment and exactly the same, it's more equipment. It wasn't so much treatment, but it was more equipment and on all the surroundings. And uh, so we decided we had a new children's ward built and at the opening of the children's ward, it was decided that we would have a dinner and we decided to have that dinner. It said that we'd, we'd raise a bit of money. And then as I went around and spoke to various people, one of the people who was going to give us money said, look, I'm not interested in one donation. I'm interested in three years. Give me something which is a plan for three years. Why don't you make a foundation? And so there were two very successful foundations running at this stage in both of the teaching hospitals. So we, uh, Andrew McDonald's uh, played a big part in this and I sat down and we organised the leading business people to come to a luncheon. We formed a foundation. We then went and spoke very much with the Sydney Children's Hospital Foundation who were very helpful for us to, and showed us the right way to go and, and what was the right attitude And uh, in the sense that they said, you know, if you're going to have a foundation, you need to say you're only going to spend a very small percentage on running the foundation and all the rest goes to children. And so we've been very strict with that and it has progressed ahead and the community 
to their credit, understood this and have followed it and taken it to heart because they realise that most of the children who go to hospital actually go to hospital out here. And we do ship and have to transfer the very sick in and the very specialised, but really the majority of children, will their, their first base and probably their treatment occurs out locally. We've been lucky. So they've helped us to keep our children local and they've uh, helped us to with equipment and oh. bringing up the standard of care that we can offer, offer our kids. We have got high quality equipment that you see either in the teaching hospitals or here. And I think when we get new residents and registrars, they're always impressed by what we offer equipment-wise and what we've got hidden away that we can drag out for emergencies. And we've got equipment that, you know, you may only use a couple of times a year, but we have it. And uh, so no child for any, I mean, will be uh, handicapped or by not, by being at the Campbelltown Hospital than not being in one of the major teaching hospitals. Now, other places have got equipment, it's just that we've got the Rolls-Royce. That's wonderful. We've got some very special kids who uh, are involved with the foundation and help us raise some money, don't we? What have, You've been here for so long. What changes have you seen in the department, in the community, in how medicine is practised? Well, I've been here so long that when we first started here, there were no paediatric residents. And then we got a few paediatric and, um, and there was no paediatric resident on the weekends. And it was covered by the obstetric registrar and they absolutely hated that. And just uh, to show the contrast, we now have nine to ten residents and about eight registrars, so that's quite a difference. And so a lot of, and and also the um, quality of the emergency staff was, was variable, I guess would be the kindest way to put it. So when we first started, we spent a lot of time I would spend a lot of, as did the other two consultants out here, a lot of time in the hospital doing things. And it was a lot more acute medicine. Now, as time's gone on, things have changed. There's still the acute medicine, but really it's being overshadowed by the chronic children. There's a lot. I, I think there's a lot more chronic children with more complicated things that have to be dealt in the local hospital because it's just the major hospitals, first of all, have got, often got bed block and uh, often the families come to it because now they now trust us. They come to us first. And there's other things have changed, you know, we used to have full beds and now the population out here is, I don't know whether it's tripled, but it's certainly, it's the fastest growing area in New South Wales and has been for many years. Our change in treatment has been that we now have the paediatric ambulatory care, which has made a significant change to both acute and chronic patients. And... Um, Thanks for the plug. I, yeah. I worked there three days a week. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Even worse is that I was against paediatric ambulatory care initially. Really? Yeah. I thought, well, what were they doing that we couldn't do just as well and follow <laughs> up? And now I am. Uh, I have seen just such a transformation that I am a keen supporter, and I encourage everybody to have something like that. And uh, as I said, but the, things are getting busier, as is, as everybody who works there knows. And the stresses on what we do are getting harder. Like, this is going to sound terrible, but when I first started, you know, a lot of intensive care work and a lot of emergency stuff and a lot of emergency department work was all new, you know. So there was no structure and you were there working on first principles, working on uh, what you thought at the time and stuff. Now with the um, APLS course and, and other things, you're expected to be better. You're expected to get a better result. The golden hour has become so important that it's just got to happen. There's been a huge leap forward of, of expectation and a huge leap forward of where you expect the results to be. And I think that's good, obviously good, but it does change a little bit the pressures that are mm. applied to the staff and the pressures that are applied. To, and again, the same thing has happened with the neonatal resuscitation. You know, you are expected to succeed. Mm. You are not expected to fail. And probably when I was around, you know, we all tried hard, but we were very much in the dark. And if you've got a bad result, people were, were probably a little less, probably a little more forgiving. Right, so you think the pressures on the staff now are just... I think enormous. Yeah, so, I think enormous. So uh, undesirable outcomes are not as forgivable as they well, maybe I once were. You get people... I think what happens with undesirable outcomes is you get lots of people who are who are 
a long way away from the actual event, making comments and often some helpful, but some not so helpful and not understanding the human side and the um, and what's happening at the time. That's a bit of our sort of setting the scene and uh, preamble. I'd really love to get into some more personal topics, Rick. Um, one thing that you are very admired for uh, do so well is mentoring. You do mentor officially the fellows who come through our department for the year, but you also unofficially mentor a lot of the senior staff and the VMOs and me as well. <laughs> I've certainly learned a lot from you, but I think mentoring is a particular skill, you know, that isn't necessarily taught, but is not natural for everyone. What are your thoughts about it and how to do it well and how to bring out the best in people and in particular in power? I'm a bit lucky. I always regard this when I story mentoring because I've uh, mentored a fellow who's been offered, had four or five years training in in paediatrics. The thing about the mentoring with these people is that they're all keen to learn. They're all keen to, to do things, but I think with mentoring, what you've got to do is you've got to be able to delegate responsibility. And you've got people don't learn unless they take things on for themselves. Unless they and um, my view, and I, and I don't know, everyone does it differently. I do it. So is is I let people do what they think is right, and I keep a fairly close eye on it. And if I think it's not going right. I will then not at the not in front of the patient, but I'll talk to them outside and say what I thought think they should go and what direction should that people should go in. And and they're very receptive. And and if you treat people with respect and you because they're not doing anything awfully they wrong and they're not doing it awfully. But if you treat them with respect and you can just guide them and push them all the way, they that's the way they learn. You know, you don't learn by people telling you what to do. You learn by putting forward your ideas and then someone saying this might be a better way of doing it. So part of this mentoring, I think, is delegation, being able to delegate people and being able to monitor it and step in if you think it's going the wrong way. And the other thing that I try to do, and I don't know how good I am, is is I try to make sure that they think things through from the beginning through to the end and they take pathways and if I think they've walked down the wrong pathway we have a discussion about that and so they're very easy to mentor. I've had as we we had a slight discussion before this I have had mentoring hasn't always been easy and you do get cases where it doesn't work and uh, and I've been in that situation and it's something that I at the time I knew was going wrong and this time I just couldn't get it to go right and I know that and I, I've always and I've sat back and I had thought about that after the event and it was a shortish normally I meant I have people with me for a year and it's a good thing because you can take them through various stages and at the end of as I say always at the end of the year the fellow if I've got it right they are talking like a consultant they are making decisions like a consultant and, and I do even less <laughs> but getting it wrong I found was the most instructive time because I sat down and had to think about what I was doing and where it went wrong and um, I didn't salvage that one I'm afraid. So don't be afraid of not being perfect at the <laughs> things you do and just learn from experiences as a general rule hey? Yeah and the other thing is you know we're, I'm lucky because the person that I mentor also has lots of input from the other people around the other clinicians around and they get taught all the other skills that make them a good doctor. To be a good doctor, you don't have to be clinically good. You have to be good at managing people. You have to be good at managing junior staff and nursing staff and communicating. And and I think communicating is the other thing we try and teach. But I I don't do it alone. There are a whole team of uh, doctors that take these junior staff through. So I think they get a pretty good deal, actually. I think it is difficult, though, for a lot of us to not micromanage the way things are, especially if it is your name at the end of the bed. So I think it is quite a skill to be able to step back a bit and let things flow. But having the default of being this is a capable person who wants to do good and is capable of taking on the extra responsibility as a starting point is probably um, what's made it a bit easier for you. I think very much so. And I, and I think that you've got to be able to be prepared to say it's not quite 
what I wanted. But you've got to understand that these people are doing their best. And so you can just push them in the right direction. Yeah. So this is the age old question in medicine is how to lead a balanced life, how to get the most out of work and family and all the other things that lead to a sort of a colorful, enriched um, existence. How have you managed to be so dedicated to your work and your patients and still manage to be so successful in your family life? Well, that's because of my wife, if you really want to know. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm probably the worst person to ask this because people always say to me, you know, you've got to be balanced and stuff like that. But the truth is medicine is a bit overwhelming and to do it properly, you do have to um, give a certain amount, a lot, a lot, you know. And, and I always admire people who say they can do it part-time because I can't. But I'm lucky that... When I brought up with my family, it wasn't, and I was very close to my father in the end, you know, as, as, as we grew up and grew up, and especially when you have your own children, you realise just how influential your parents are. But it wasn't quantity, it was quality. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're open and with your children and you're prepared to listen to them when they come and talk, and let me through some of those teenage years, they didn't actually come and talk that often, but, <laughs> but when you, if you're there, they will eventually come. And it's interesting, I'll tell a story. I, um, my third boy is in construction and he's been in the construction industry for five years as construction management, or a bit longer than five years, and he's now being groomed to go up to the next step, which is management And so he was at one of these management courses and they said, what's your one bit of advice? And he said to them, well, my one bit of advice is what my father told me. And I remember this, when he was going through high school, he was very laid back and very relaxed and he would just amble along through life. And at one stage I said to him, look, you've got to be more serious. I said to him, you know, as you're walking along, you can't amble along. You've got to walk with purpose. So you've got to pick up a clipboard, put your head down and pretend you're walking with purpose. So everything you do in your life has got to be with purpose. Mm. So at this course he said to the man, he said, well, it's it's from my father. My father says, walk with purpose. Don't run and cause panic. (laughs) And I thought, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's walk with purpose. And he remembered that. And so as parents, you've got to realise that you have a big influence on what your children do and say later on. And I guess they see how you live life as well. So it's not just what you say, but your actions and your just everything and how you lead your life is influencing your kids, isn't it? Yeah, none of them wanted so. to be a doctor though because they thought it was too much. But anyhow, yeah, but yeah, I think they, they've all turned out okay. Yeah, so you think, Rick, because this is quite a big sort of area of conversation in medicine these days, that it's not just the amount of time you spend, but you've got to be present and you've got to make that time count and that's what's been the, one of your secrets. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, I, and I've been lucky enough to be able to do that in both areas. Probably not look back. I always think I went to all the football games and I went to all the dancing and the aerobics and stuff like that. But it was more, was it was the quality time. I didn't have lots of time, but we, what we did probably, and I hope I supported them in what they regarded as important. We all go through difficult times in our journeys and in our life. How have you been able to maintain your kind nature and your peace of mind through the things that invariably come along that can be challenging? Well, I've had, uh, it's been, um, medically, uh, things have been, haven't been completely smooth and uh, it's no secret that I actually was, uh, had a terrible case that went through the coroner's court and then I was actually um, investigated and uh, went through the um, healthcare commission. And uh, let me tell you, it was probably one of the most stressful experiences of my time. And I learnt an enormous amount about that, about myself and about how you cope. And uh, none of it came easily. So let me first of all say that. And that if anyone is in this situation, or has, and let me tell you, the way the court's going, we're all going to be in part of some of these situations. I ended up seeing a psychologist to help me cope with this, and um, and he made a uh, significant difference. Was lucky that I'm going to have a supportive family, so that 
makes a huge difference. And I had very supportive colleagues. And let me say that if you have a colleague who is going through any of these situations, don't think that you should say nothing. Just give them support because at the end of the day, you have to know that what you're doing is okay. You have to know that you're still, because you have people eight hours a day telling you you're not okay and that you're, you you know, and you made a muck of this or this was terrible and stuff like that, you know, and and they're one decision out of about a thousand. But, and and you often doubt. I mean, you know, it's human nature because actually, in fact, it's human nature for doctors to do that doubting anyhow at the best of times and to have your colleagues stand up beside you and say, look, this is tough and you've done well and weeks makes a huge difference. So I, um, I say to anybody that if you have a colleague who is going through any of these cases, stand up and support him and let them know because it makes a significant difference. Did you ever think about stopping? Oh, um, no. I was no. dread afraid that they would stop me, I thought. <laughs> Um, I thought, what if they decide that I shouldn't uh, practice? You get a very warped idea about what's important, you know, when when you're going through these cases and the worst case scenario, they're they're a bit like doctors. They always give you the worst case scenario and then they don't look at anything else. And so um, I never felt that it was not worth doing medicine or looking after people, but these situations make you doubt yourself and make you doubt, you know, the end product. It is true that in today's climate, it's not a question of if but when. I mean, you would be the last person anyone would think would be in that situation, but it just goes to show that that is one of the pressures and one of the possible outcomes yeah. of, of doing what we do. And we're not taught very well how to survive it. And because you always think, this isn't going to happen to me, you know, this is for the people who drink under the table or do all sorts of terrible things, but it's it's not that at all, you know, and you can get, and uh, as I said to one of the lawyers, well, this case was, you know, obvious, but it's not the cases that you worry about that you end up, the end result is still the same, you know, you still have people hammering at you saying, you know, this wasn't good and this wasn't good and, you know, and you then have these doubts that come and what you need is people to help stand by you. And I think, as I said, I think this is going to be part of the pressures that are going to face the next generation more so than us, than me, not, not us, me. But certainly something that is difficult to survive alone. Oh, you couldn't do it alone. You couldn't do it alone. As I said, if, and if it happened, you need extra support you need as I said I was lucky because my family supported me strongly and you also need and I would thoroughly recommend anyone that they go find a psychologist and it's interesting the psychologists don't tell you what to do they just walk you through the situation Mm. and you tell them what you think you should do and they usually say yes so but it's the exercise of walking through the situation that makes a big difference Mm. did it change the way you practiced medicine? All right. I was caught because I, I was trusted a mother and, and I know you, you, we all should be, and she was very clever and she really took me down the garden path. And uh, so it does made me a little bit more, uh, less trusting of what I'm told, yes, and I suppose a little less naive. I think I was probably a little naive at that time, you know, but that's about what it did, you know. It, it hasn't taken, but it did for a while, you know, make me very, very cautious. But I, now, I'm, you know, but the trouble is, then you go the other way. So it's a matter of balancing it out. But yeah, yeah, I'm back to where I think I was beforehand, but I'm a little less naive. Yes, wonderful. Well, I wasn't sure that you would share that experience with us, Rick. But thank you so much for doing so because I think that would be very valuable to anyone listening um, to get your perspective on that and and to know that it's okay to talk about these things um, and that you can get through them if they do happen to you. So thank you so much for that. What are your thoughts on on burnout? That's also a big topic of a conversation these days. What it is, have you experienced it, and, and what protects you against it? Well, yes, it is a big topic, and, uh, and you see it in your colleagues, and you can hear it in them. It's, it's, it's just because they suddenly start becoming a bit cynical about the patients and a bit cynical about the situation, and you think, oh, this is where you're walking down that dangerous road, and you, you need to think about what you're doing and where you're going. I'm, I always reckon that I'm very lucky because I mentor the fellow 
I see things that people say, you know, well, you must have seen a thousand demonias, you know, surely you must get bored with it. And when you do it with the fellow, you see it from a completely different point of view. You see it through somebody else's eyes and it's like a new patient, like a new disease. And so it's, I've been lucky that my, um, that I don't have that feeling like I've seen this a hundred times and why do I want to see another one? Or um, I've talked to this person, I suppose the people around me must get sick of hearing the same explanation, but, but it's always different when it's with a different person. You get, I think the thing that probably I find the most distressing is having children who need psychology input or, or extra help at school or things like that and just knowing it's not available. I think the hardest thing is is knowing there's a solution but not being able to offer it. Mm. And I think that's the hardest thing. Mm. The inequity. And you know yeah. that there are some people who would be able to access those things for their kids, but because of location or because of socioeconomic capability, there is that inequity. Yeah, and, you know, and there's always going to be, as I said, you know, we come from an area out here where there's a diversity of uh, income and poverty and, and there's a diversity of, of uh, parenting skills. And, uh, and so those are the things. So really I think that's probably the hardest part of medicine is not the actual treating the illnesses but the inequities and stuff and not being able to step in and make a, a huge difference. It can make a little difference. I mean, you can only offer them good medicine and good diagnosis, but it's the middle bit that falls apart and makes it very frustrating for everybody and you feel for them. And I feel for people who come in and say, you know, well, you know, you need this and they say, well, we can't get it because of X, Y, and Z. Mm. You think, oh, that's the hardest bit I find. Yeah, yeah. So have you ever felt burnt out in your career? I suppose I've times I've felt like I have to tie myself to the desk to get through the day, but that's <laughs> only one day here or there. Yes. Times when I go on holidays I think, boy, I didn't realise I was so tired. Yeah. But no, not actually burnt, not actually, not, I haven't actually felt. You haven't felt that cynicism. Yeah, yeah, and I, I fight against that. If I think I'm being a bit cynical, I then I do fight against that. So it's an actual cognitive process for you that yeah. you feel that creeping in and you address I, it and yeah, you. combat it because I don't yeah. want to be burnt out. I don't know when I'm going to retire either, but I don't want to be burnt out. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a fair few years you've got yeah. in you yet, Rick. This is something that I think I've found, not found very often in medicine, but something that I've certainly found in you. In the generally competitive world that we find ourselves in, in the medical field, you embody a sense of humility and vulnerability. Have you always been that way and how has it served you in your work? All right. I've always been competitive. Don't, humility and competitive. Um, Mutually exclusive. Yeah. exclusive, yes. <laughs> I've always been competitive. I've always respected people who I have competed against and um, I have uh, and I've always felt uh, there's a certain arrogance in certain parts of medicine that I have always uh, thought was uncalled for and unhelpful. But I think, you know, yeah, you need to be competitive. You need to be strive to be the very best, but you don't need to shove it down someone's throat and you need to treat people with respect. And I treat everybody with respect. I treat the patients and their parents. I treat the nursing staff. I treat the ward clerks. I treat because I think everybody in that hospital and where I work plays an important part and you have to recognise that and you have to, and if it doesn't come from us, then it doesn't come. So really I think the people at in any position need to be treated for respect, but we must definitely do it. We must set the standard Absolutely. and set the tone for the yeah, culture in our the whole, But I mean it's from everybody, from the, you know, and, and, uh, and I hope I do that uh, to, to everybody because I just think everybody in that hospital is important and, uh, and needs to be and needs to be recognized that they all work hard. You know. Yeah, it's a, it's a passion project going into the health uh, sector, isn't it? No matter what level or whatever department you're in. Yeah, and, and people say, oh, you know, you're doctors, you work so hard. But really everybody there does work hard. And we are reliant on the cleaners mm-hmm. and we are reliant on people that serve the meals and we are reliant on everybody. And we need, and, and I have always, um, well, not always, but well, I've recognised that and I've tried to, to, to instil that into 
everybody I work with. Yes, I agree. That's so important. But also the, your patience. I've, from what I've seen of how you treat people and how you value people, everyone in your eyes seems to be of equal value and uh, worthy of respect and time and attention, no matter where you come from and or what you do. Um, I just feel that if I treat people like I'd like them to treat my children. Right. So I never, That's uh, a different standard to how you'd like to be treated yourself, isn't yeah. it? It's a higher standard. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what I work on and that I feel that, you know, that's important. Yeah. So now on to uh, another personal topic. You and uh, Donna, your wife, uh, are, are legendary for having a formidable <laughs> partnership. Uh, she's a big personality and a wonderful human being. So, Rick, how have you made it work? You know, what's your advice on relationships? Oh, gosh. Well, you're probably, I'm, just, I'm probably the worst of the lot. If you ask her, she'd say I was the worst of the lot. I was, you know, it's interesting. I look back at it because Donna's always said, oh, well, you know, you're the doctor and what am I bringing into this thing? And um, we have this discussion uh, because she brought interesting things to me, you know, uh, I was, you know, this is going to sound awful, but really, you know, I had a reasonably good upbringing. I didn't suffer anywhere. I, school was a breeze. University was okay. I went into medicine. I did the things I wanted to do. She brought into me the ability to talk to anybody. I was not very good at that. And it's going to sound silly now, but but I had to learn how to do that. I had to learn to talk to the ward clerks. I had to learn to talk to other people because, you know, when, when you go through like that, you know, you don't need to talk to anybody, you know. You, and she impressed on me how important it was to compliment people on their job and to compliment people on how they were working, you know, rather than, you know, I just thought that's what you did, but she made that important. And my children were the other people who going coming back to this, but they, because, again, you know, School wasn't hard for me, but it was been hard for a couple of my kids. They've struggled and 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 I realised the importance of compassion and understanding and, and things like that through my children teaching me that I've then passed on to other people. But so I know that my kids have done well because of their mother, not because of anything I did. She was always there. I was in and out, but she was always there and she was the rock for them. So that, and uh, she says to me, if anybody else comes up and tells me you saved their child's life, I'll hit them in the head. So every time people come and say that, she says to them, well, you don't live with him. So, <laughs> so she keeps me very grounded. grounded. I feel, I yeah, I feel, the same thing. I feel yeah. like that person you know, in, in Rome where they, uh, you know, Caesar is in the chariot and the person behind him says, you're only a man, you're only a man. <laughs> that's my wife, you know. She keeps me grounded. This isn't it. So, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's great. But still, I mean, you, you, I'm sure Donna is deserving of every word you said, but there must still have been something that, that you consciously did um, in, your, in your thoughtful way in order to... I mean, it says, you know, you need both parties to contribute to have a successful partnership. She's a far better talker than I am. So she, so she kept she, the lines of communication open. open. Yes, yes. much to sometimes difficulty on my behalf, but she does keep talking. So I, I She makes you talk, yes. Yeah. So we've touched on a few of these things, but what drives you and what gives you the energy and motivation to work so hard and to bring all of yourself to work. And, and you know, just uh, for our listeners, Rick will, you know, on a day he's on at Sydney Children's, you know, set off from home at 5.30 in the morning and be there till eight o'clock at night and then drive by the hospital at Campbelltown to see his patients and get home, you know, sometimes after 10 o'clock. And, and although he is aging very gracefully, he, you know, <laughs> not the youngest person, and yet he's always present and always available and unhurried despite how busy he is. How do you do that and what, what gives you that drive? Good question. I've never really thought of that, actually. Um, I think that's the sense of, of what I think is right. 
you know, what I think is the right thing to do. I, I don't know, I spend so long in there because I'm slow. But I think, you know, I have this, I guess I've always been driven by the thing that to do what is right and what I think is right. And I guess I'm the person that I think uh, is the best guide to that. So uh, that's what probably drives me. And also the other thing is that, you know, it's to tell my children, you've got to like what you do because you do it for an awful long time. So that love, that love of your art, the love of your work is... It's still there. Yeah, yeah, and I keep doing it. And when I, when I guess I get sick and tired of that and I guess sometime that'll happen, then I'll be time to me to say enough. Yeah. But I haven't quite got there yet. No, no, I don't think you're even close. Rick, do you have a spiritual life? Yeah, I saw this question and um, I'm not, an, um, yeah, I believe in a higher being and I believe, and, and my children, although you wouldn't know it, well, I'm not Catholic. My children were brought up Catholic and in fact, um, this is a terrible, this is always a standing joke in my house. But when I was in about third class, um, the teacher went around the room asking people what they were and what religion they were. And I'd just actually come to this school. I'd been there about two days and I was sitting next to a fellow who was born in England. And he said, uh, you know, he cut to him and he said, I'm Church of England. And I thought, I'm born in Adelaide. So <laughs> I said, I was Church of Adelaide. Really? Yes. The only sole member, I think. But as a spirit, yes, I believe in there is a higher being and I believe that um, that at some time there will be, uh, I don't know if it's a reckoning or a judgment day or whatever, but, you know, and that we will be judged on how we are to our fellow man, you know, and I try to think that's what I, that's a principle I work off now. I guess I won't know. <laughs> but that's what keeps me going. And I think that's what, you know, gives you that sense of what's right. Mm. A sense of something greater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whether I'm right or wrong, I don't know. I think my children have uh, probably disagree with this, but anyhow, that's where we're up to. Yeah, but it's been a guiding, yeah. one of your guiding uh, yeah, mm. and again, harking back to my father, my father, he could quite, he was, you know, gosh, we never went. I think we went to Sunday school about three times in my life, but my father could quote the Bible and he was a military man and uh, he, the soldiers are all very much, sorry, I'm, I'm drifting off, the soldiers are, are often interestingly because the soldiers, having been through those experiences, all tend to be quite religious. Right, right. In their own ways, yeah. I mean, you're confronting your own mortality uh, in a way that, you know, most of us will never experience. Yeah, that's right, you know, and so uh, so that always impressed me too. Mm. What does the future look like for you? Ah, good question. Um, it's interesting. I, I am a, now of an age where a lot of my contemporaries are retiring or people have retired and um, and the trouble is I'm not much of a golfer. And, uh, I'm not much of a gardener. And so I think, you know, I know that as I get on a bit, I'll be doing, uh, you know, less. But I'm looking forward to just slowly, um, if I do, slowly easing out of the medical thing. Because I think there's a stage where, where you, you know, you, you have to pass out, let people younger go through. So I, I guess I'm, I'm now at that end of my career. i got lots of things that I would do when I'm finished, but Donna's not ready for me to be around the house. I think she looks at that <laughs> idea in horror. Um, but, yeah, uh, and hopefully then at that stage I'll be at peace with, the, you know, I just love doing what I'm doing, but at some stage I know I've got to change. And if I was uh, much better organised, then I think that people, I would have my, my retirement plan, but I'm just going to do like everything else. I'm just going to fall into it. I fell into medicine. I fell into paediatrics. I hopefully I'll fall into, fall into retirement. retirement. Well, you're making some strides. You gave me one Friday a fortnight in your rooms, so that's a start. Yes. If you could give your 25-year-old self some advice, what would it be? I would say be less worried about some of your decisions. They're going to sort themselves out with your patience. And, and this is the thing that, that be less worried about their futures because they often sort themselves out. A lot of the kids that I thought were going to do terribly have done rather well. A few of them haven't. But, you know, the majority of all those things that we worried about, they actually at the end of the day, they've done, they do reasonably well. Do more exercise, which I <laughs> and, um, and enjoy the moment. Enjoy the moment because it, it goes. It's fleeting. 
Absolutely, you know, and so and I guess part of the deal is you spend most of your time worrying about things you've done and haven't done and the truth is, like, you know, once they're done, they're done. You should move on. Don't uh, wallow in. Well, the, the lawyers and everyone else can wallow in it down yeah. the track, but you should move on. Which is a difficult thing to do for most of us, you know. Uh, there's lots of ruminations about some of the decisions we've made and have we done the right thing and so just make a decision. Well, I think ruminations a bit healthy, but the trouble is we do it continuously, Mm. you know, and I think, you know, you do, you make your decision, you go on, and if you want to go back and look at it, you think, yeah, I would have done that better next time and then move on. Okay. The problem, and I guess I guess it's easier to say it than do it. I mean, and I try and do this, but every time you make a decision and you think it doesn't go quite the right way, you know, I think, oh, that's terrible guilt. Um, and it and it hangs around a bit, but really we should just move on. Mm. You know, you've got to do it, you know, and it's very hard to do though, but that was the advice I'd give. Whether I'd be able to follow it or not would be a different thing. And um, I guess perhaps we touched on that in the last question, but to anyone out there who may be having a difficult time, be it a medical student, a resident, a trainee or a consultant, what would you say? My advice is talk to people because I'm sure that, that a lot of my um, contemporaries don't realise what I've been through. And if you get the right person to talk to, it is just incredibly helpful. The second thing I'd say to any of the trainees is you need to go outside. You cannot solve this problem yourself. You need now what your psychologist or something, they don't tell you what to do. They just walk you through it. So at the end of the day, you have that solution in your mind. And it doesn't happen with one visit. That's the other thing. You've got to be prepared to go back a few times and, and, and work it out. And that medicine is a big area and if you're unhappy where you are, there are other areas in medicine that you can always go to and thrive in. And so just that would be my other advice. You see what your options are. You're not stuck. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But talk. You've got to talk. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It's okay. Well, There's no shame in it. There's abs- no weakness in it. Absolutely not. And the thing that will surprise everybody is that people have been through it. You know, everybody's been through it You can't, and uh, and survived in various different ways. So it's just you're not Robinson Crusoe. There's lots of people out there that have had different but similar experiences. And lastly, what's the most important thing in life? The truth is family and happiness is the most important thing in life. Fame isn't. Wealth, well, I mean, everybody likes to have a little bit, isn't, but family, at the end of the day, family and happiness and uh, I suppose health, but the health's just luck, but family and happiness. Thank you. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for allowing me to do this. Oh, you're most welcome.